It's good to see everyone out this morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. It's good to just be able to be able to worship God with his people. I, you know, we really, um, it's easy to look past some of the some of the things that we just get used to. They start to become maybe just common or mundane, and they really shouldn't. The, the appreciation that we should have for just being able to worship comfortably in this building, but even more than that, the, the, uh, appreciate the church that assembles together uh, within this building and uh, the family and God that comes together to worship him and to learn from his word. It's, it's something that should never cease to make us more grateful to God. So uh, it's just it's good to have another morning to be able to do this with you all. And like I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you're not already there, we are going to be um, concluding a series that I started a few weeks ago on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 29 uh, is the end of this sermon. We've gone through a couple lessons in chapter 5. We looked at chapter 6 as a unit. And again, I think chapter 7, um, while there, there's a little bit more uh, that, that Jesus talks about, all throughout, what I think you have is really, it, as it concludes, it just crescendos into really direct but also difficult applications for Christ's kingdom. But ultimately, it is these things that lead us to heaven. And that is the, the title of the lesson this morning. Um, as we go throughout chapter 7, what we have is Jesus' instruction that just guides us to heaven, helps us uh, even further um, know how to get to heaven. And we'll talk about that as we go all throughout the lesson. But there, we're going to break this up into four different sections as we go through. The first section uh, is just in the first six verses here, and it's one of the most familiar um, passages to the religious world and, incidentally, to the secular world alike. Uh, lots of people like to quote this uh, passage, uh, in particular, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. But um, here in the first six verses, what I think you have is Jesus really describing to us what it looks like to um, the expectation, first of all, that, that people of his kingdom are supposed to judge fairly um, and, and be looking towards the correct standard or one standard over another. So just beginning in the first couple of verses here of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Um, again, very familiar passage to just everyone. You know, anytime you um, condemn a certain kind of behavior or action, whether it be online or not, uh, somebody always wants to come in and say, oh, oh but I thought, the, I thought the same book. I thought Jesus said not to judge. Uh, and clearly there's some... <laughs> There's a strong disconnect there that we'll talk about as we go throughout these first six verses. But really what Jesus is doing is he is highlighting, as we've been going throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he highlights a lot of the corruptions of the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites, as he'll, as he'll say in Matthew chapter 23 especially. He's, I think what he's doing here is emphasizing the error of hypocritical behavior, really of hypocrisy when it comes to the standards that we promote the standards that we push on really other people, while maybe not uh, truly staying within those or, or staying within those boundaries ourselves. Often we like to put other people under a stricter judgment, under a more uh, you know tighter uh, standard than we like to put ourselves in. When it comes to you know somebody losing their temper 
uh, throughout the day or at, or at work or something like that, we look at that and we're just like, oh, they, well, they just have no patience whatsoever. But when we have a bad day and we lose our temper, what do we usually, how, what's, what's the, what, what are we more inclined to think about this specific moment where somebody lost their temper? Well, you really just don't know what I've been through today. <laughs> but we don't, we don't think that graciously, maybe compassionately, at least, at least maybe not um, as naturally as we should when it comes to others, especially when it comes to brethren. And so we like to hold other people to standards. Um, uh, we look at the Bible and we say, this is the absolute truth. And if anyone does not abide by this, well, they're in the wrong. Obviously they are. But when it comes to us slipping up, we give a whole lot more grace. Uh, and so I think that's what the Pharisees did, especially. And that's one of the reasons that Jesus says, listen, do as they say and as they teach, but do not do as they do. Because they are hypocrites. They, they don't actually fulfill the law. They don't actually care, like they say they do, about um, abiding by these things. And so he asked the, uh, well, uh, I would just ask the question as we read in the first couple of verses here. As he says in verse 2, why do we need to be wary of, of judging? Because in the way you judge, you will be judged by that same standard. And so I just ask from the very beginning, which standard would you rather be judged by? Would you rather be judged by uh, God's or would you rather be judged by man's? And just take that a step further. When you think about how quickly we judge others when it comes to their mishaps, their mistakes, um, I, wonder how, how, I wonder how quickly we get to that, that uh, moment of what, what is, how does God view this person? Um, and so we need to be careful about not following after the same pattern of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites, as Jesus says. Well, going beyond that in verse 3, I think what you find, it, just within the context of this um, passage where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, because we need to be careful about which standard that we are actually following. Is it God's or is it our own? I think even within the context, you find... Uh, uh, instruction that helps us combat against what the world tends to, whether it's the religious world or secular world, what they tend to say about this passage. So just look at what he says beginning in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Now before we get to verse 5, obviously what Jesus is describing here, it's an absurd illustration. You have somebody who, who sees you know, a speck of dust in their brother's eye, and yet they have this, this, this plank or this log in their own. And so what's going to happen when they try to take it out? Well, they're going to cause a lot more damage. Uh, and so it, it's an absurd illustration, and I think just to make the point that look how absurd you look when you act just like they do, when you act with such hypocrisy. You say, oh, yes, I care about God's standards. I care about God's law. I care about what, how he would respond in this kind of, how he would respond, what he expects me to respond with in this kind of situation. But uh, making sure that um, we don't go too far in the other direction of hypocrisy and then uh, when it comes to us, we don't care about uh, being as tight on that standard. Well, going on to verse 5, after that illustration, he says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is he saying here? That there's no responsibility? Is he saying that really, you know, again, absolutely no judgment whatsoever? Well, as I said, we're going to see just in, especially in verse 6, that that's just not the case, even within the context of the passage. But rather, what I think you find is that no matter what, you have a responsibility. He gives us 
two things to do. One, you have to clear your own sight. You have to get the plank out of your own eye. But, but look at how he says this in verse 5. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, well, you take the plank out of your, out of your own eye, and you know what? You just stop focusing so much on your brother. No. He actually just emphasizes the fact, but you, then you can actually help. Then you can do uh, what you should desire to do, which is help, encourage them, rebuke maybe, correct gently at times. And so even within the context, I think you find that. Well, just moving on into verse 6, you continue to see uh, this balance. But before we get to verse 6, I wanted to look at a couple other passages. Uh, John chapter 7 and verse 24, clearly there's a worldly misunderstanding here. Uh, John chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so obviously, just, just looking through a couple other passages... You find that uh, the world's definition of what this passage means, it's clearly not the case. There's a a strong disconnect. But I think the key is in, as we've been talking about, personal responsibility, personal accountability. Um, In John chapter 5, just a couple chapters before, in verse 30, look at what Jesus says when he talks about uh, not doing anything by his own initiative. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So you ask the question, how are we supposed to judge then? Well, who else? Look to who else but to God, the Father, who knows all. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm not going to trust someone else. I'm not going to trust their standards either because guess what? That's man-made. But you come to this standard. We were talking about this a little bit in the Bible class in, in 2 Timothy chapter. 3 and verses 16 and 17, look at all of the things that God says his word equips us to do. And one of those things, correction, teaching, training in righteousness. It's interesting because you get to chapter 4 and sometimes I think that's kind of a, an unfortunate chapter break because I think that verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3 are connected to what Paul says in chapter 4 when he says, I charge you, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season and, and rebuke, reprove, exhort. All of those things fall under what he just said the word equips you for, correction. And, and for that training in righteousness. And so, of course, where are we going to look if we want to judge fairly, to not judge hypocritically? You go to what God has said. And then guess what? You're not saying, well, Luke Caps judges this. You're not saying, well, Glenn Price judges this. No, it's God has judged this. God has said that this is a sin that we can't be a part of. And so it it really doesn't matter what I think about it. It's what God has said, and I'm just repeating the words. Um, Well, going further into the text, in verse 6, finally, again, you see this balance within the direct context. In verse 6, right after he has talked about this, this, uh, this kind of judging, he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What is he saying here? But you're going to have to make some judgments. There are going to be some people who treat the word in that kind of way. Uh, As he talks about not casting your pearls before swine, not giving what is holy to dogs. And we look at that kind of language and we're just like, Jesus, (laughs) he's saying this? I think he's telling us, you are going to have to make judgments. But... But guess what? You, you don't have to worry about yourself, your own standard making that. We can look to God's word. We have everything that we need to make the proper judgment, to make the proper decisions, have that uh, holy discernment. 
and the righteous discernment. And so what I think he says here ultimately is we need to discern who is honest and who is not when we are taking them the gospel. And there are many, many times where that's gonna, that, that responsibility is going to fall on us, where at some point we're going to have to say, I've got to shake the dust off my feet, move on to someone else. When people make it clear that they just won't have it, that's a judgment that we will have to make. Um, and so obviously, even within the direct context, you see that strong disconnect between what Jesus says and what the rest of the world likes to say about this passage. I like one thing that Brother Earnhardt said in his commentary, particularly when he was talking about verse 6. Um, he, essentially, he, I, I think what he was uh, promoting is that this, or suggesting is that this is about impartiality. Uh, and that may remind you of some things that even James says in his epistle. But one thing he said about verse 6 is, even if fallible, sinful men are ill-equipped to sit in harsh judgment of their fellows, which, yes, we are. He continues on to say, they are not, therefore, expected to view men with a naive gullibility. So we can't judge. Well, that means that we just, we're just going to act like people are okay when, when clearly they are rebellious against God and they're some of the most wicked people and wicked being that they hate him. So we don't, get to, we don't get to discern who those people are. No, you do. We actually have a responsibility, I would say, to do so. And so uh, from the very beginning of the chapter, what we find is Jesus tells us that we need to judge fairly on this path to heaven. Well, secondly, not only do we need to judge fairly, but he also, I, I think, talks about those who, who seek him, not just apathetically and not just uh, really not determinedly, but, but seeking sincerely, really trying to uh, know who God is and trying to get to him. In verses 7 and 8 beginning, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so with, <laughs> he gives three different uh, illustrations to make the same point, again, emphasizing the point. You will find me. You can find me, first of all. And you will if you are sincerely trying to find me. Uh, but there are many people today who merely act the part. They say, oh, yes, I, I do care about knowing who God is. I do care about looking like Jesus. But it's clear by their actions, by the fruit that they bear, they're not. People can say that, but that doesn't, just because you say something, that doesn't make it so. I like one thing that um, uh, Jeremiah says that um, God says through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 10, he says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, talking about the exile, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And I, even here I think that this is a condition. When? When will they find him? When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now, there is uh, some things that we, that we understand that uh, some physical promises to Israel 
that he is giving there. But I don't think that, that there's no application for us there today. I think even here you get just hints of the gospel message uh, within the, the, the prophecies throughout the Old Testament. What does God say? When you seek me, you'll find me. Oh, I, prom- I give you that promise. I give you my word on that. Not only that, but, but it, you still see the condition that is brought forward into the New Testament. You have to wholeheartedly seek me to find me. And if you don't, you're not going to. There are lots of people who, again, apathetically read through the scriptures and say, well, this just doesn't help me. Well, have you really applied it? There was one person who came to uh, Brother Stephen Russell. He had many, many studies throughout the week, and, and there were some that I was, uh, that I was able to be a part of. Uh, there were others that were talking about more weighty matters, more private matters with certain individuals, and so I wasn't able to go in those. But every time I was able to actually be a part of those studies, it was very helpful to me to see, you know, how do, we, how, how do you talk to someone when they come to you and they say, I'm struggling with anxiety, and I know that I should not be. I know that God has said that this is something I shouldn't, uh, that, that, that shouldn't be a big part of my life, worrying about worldly things. I'm just struggling. And one time, he said, he said, to, this, uh, he said to this woman, listen, have you been doing what we've already discussed? Have you been praying every day? And have you been reading your Bible every day? And she, she just said, I mean, no. And he said, okay, well, come back. When you have, and if you're still feeling this way, then we can, then we can move forward. And I thought, wow, <laughs> they're actually coming to you and they're kind of revealing some of these uh, private matters in their own lives that, you, you know, I, I'm just like, especially being as inexperienced and young as I was, uh, I understand that I'm still young, but being even more inexperienced and younger than I, was, than I am now, I just, to, to me, I was like, <laughs> someone comes to you and you just say, well, we'll talk more about it later. And what I was talking to him about that and he just said, uh, listen, we went through scriptures. We read several passages that talked about the need, the necessity for God's people to go to him and bring these burdens to him. And we talked about how this is one step. This is just a step that we can take to get to the point where we don't have those anxious feelings or we don't have some of, the, some of these bitter feelings that, that we've been struggling with. But if you're not even going to do that, what's the, what's the point in going to the next step? You're not even going to do the foundational, the fundamental, the most fundamental things. And so I think that's how many people will approach the scriptures at times in the same way. They read through it and they say, okay, well... I'll just be able to pray my sorrows away. Not necessarily. Read Lamentations. That's a very sorrowful book. Dark book. And Jeremiah, the name is literally Lamentations. And Jeremiah is crying to the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that it's absent of hope, that it's absent of any kind of joy. There's joy, but it's only connected to God. And it doesn't mean that the circumstances change physically. Uh, And so... I think that there are definitely ways that people can still today come to the scriptures, read God's word, and yet say, come away from it saying, well, this just doesn't help me at all. Are you really, are you really applying it? That's the question. Now, uh, another uh, kind of, uh, very similar um, way of saying this, Luke, how he says it in Luke chapter 11, in verses 8 and 9, as, as Jesus gives a parable talking about the man who has already gone to bed, and his friend comes to him, the second man, his friend comes to him and uh, asks for some things. And, and Jesus 
uh, going through this parable as he's setting it up, says that the man will not get up because he's already going to bed. His children has already gone to bed. And, uh, but in verse 8, as he continues on, he says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persi persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for, to you. Uh, and so in one case you find, well, they're friends, that should be enough. Well, sometimes it ain't. <laughs> and, but you, I think we've all been in that situation where somebody just keeps asking, keeps, you know, if you're trying to go to sleep and somebody keeps making noise and you can do something to make that stop, generally you do that something to make it stop because you need to go back to bed. Uh, and, and so, again, I think that persistence that Jesus is talking about, this isn't someone who gives up after the first try but someone who is determined, someone who does not relentlessly trying to seek the Lord. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Well, moving on in the text, in verses 9 and 11, uh, beginning in verse 9, he says, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who, who, uh, who ask him? Now, again, just reemphasizing some of the things that we've already talked about in Luke chapter 11, that, that idea of persistence and, and coming to God, it will be answered. And then he gives, by contrast, this idea. Listen, if, if, if evil men can give good gifts to their children, if men who uh, are not holy, if men who are not perfect and infallible, if even they can do, give these good gifts, can't God give good gifts? If we can trust that even these uh, infallible people, imperfect people can, do, uh, uh, can give good gifts, then we should have so much more confidence and so much more assurance that God can as well. Um, and so we have a greater trust in the reward since it comes from not just, not just some man that we trust and yet still is imperfect, but from a perfect God whom the definition of perfect just comes from his being. And so there should be confidence there as we are uh, see, trying to honestly, sincerely seek after the Lord. Finally, in verse 12 with this point, another very familiar passage as it says, In everything, therefore... Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And I think that that's interesting um, that, that Jesus brings this phrase back in. We started in this, uh, well, not started, but um, basically, verse 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about how he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And he talks about the law and the prophets specifically that he came to fulfill. And then he brings in what we call the golden rule. And, and for this is the law and the prophets. You, if you were a Pharisee, you'd look through some of the things that Jesus is saying already, and you'd be like, you don't find that in the law. Well, we already looked at some of those examples where you actually do. But here is another example where in verse 12, he says, this is the law and the prophets. Again, you could look at that and say, well, where do you find that? What are the greatest commandments again? That you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you will... Love your neighbor as yourself. I have to say, I really think that that gets at least, at least a very similar point across as what he says here. Therefore, the, the, the treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, 
And, and so here, one, once again, all that Jesus is teaching here is that from, from the beginning to the end of this uh, sermon, none of this was hidden from them. You could have known this. This was in the law and the prophets. You could have, you could have emulated this beautifully. But people are too dense sometimes, aren't they? Not just Pharisees, but even today, as you go throughout the scriptures, as we were talking about maybe apathetically, we need to make sure, again, that we are honestly trying to see what God is trying to teach us and not just make the wrong point. I don't know if you've ever taught a Bible class or you've preached a sermon, you have felt that just gut punch when somebody comes up to you. You've, you've had an entire lesson. You, you've, gone, you've studied all week and you've tried to make sure that this is going to be a good applicable lesson. And then the, somebody comes up to you and makes a comment and they make the exact wrong point of the entire time you spent on that lesson. How gut-wrenching, how, how sorrowful must it make God to see the people that he created in his image? Not just, not just ignorantly do that, but m- even more than that, and maybe more so, arguably, willfully try to twist what God has said, really just to suit them. And so we need to make sure that we are really striving to see what God is trying to teach us as we go throughout his word. Well, the third point is uh, the idea, I would say, of, of uh, continually, perpetually, uh, incessantly striving to make it to heaven. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 beginning, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And we'll continue on in just a moment. But once more, as we've seen throughout several passages, you have dichotomous language. There's no in between. Here's Jesus. Here's God saying there's only two paths. Now, people look at all of the different things that we can do and they say, look at all these different religions. You, can, you really say that there's only one way to heaven. You really say that there's only two paths that people can take. Yes, there is. You can follow the God the creator, you can follow the one who made all of this, or you can follow the created. And you can follow their mindsets, you can follow their attitudes, you can follow their truth. <laughs> but guess what? As we talked about earlier this morning in the Bible class, just because people say something's true, that doesn't make it so. What is truth? God. He's the standard. As we started this lesson, he is that measure that we look to to find what is right and wrong. He is the one that determines what is good and what is, or what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Now, I think the main question we need to ask, though, when it comes to these couple of verses here, when we realize there are only two paths, we need to ask, which path do you love more? Do you find that it's a struggle to stay on the, uh, to stay on the narrow path that leads to heaven? Again, I really liked a lot that Brother Earnhardt said in his commentary throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount. And one thing he said was about this. He said, only the man who still loves that wickedness of the world will feel pressed in and suffocated by the king's highway. It's the people, it, it, the most joyous people who are Christians, who sound like Paul <laughs> writing to the Philippians. Those are the people that have truly, sincerely done away with the world's uh, standards. 
They, what they think is normal, it's clearly not what the world thinks is normal. What th- their standard of normalcy is Christ's path, is God's will, his way, his initiative. And that's not to say, you know, no one's, of course, no one's ever going to uh, walk this path perfectly. We stumble. But it is still the people that you find who are uh, those people who we could describe as having Christ in them. Those are not people who just toy and entertain the thought of, you know, doing some of the things that the world likes to do. Those aren't the people who, you know, just say, well, I really wish that I could watch some of these shows. I really wish that I could say some of these things. I really wish that I could do some of those things. Again, I'm not saying that we're never going to struggle with those kinds of, those kinds of wicked desires, worldly desires. But if we are really striving to get to heaven, then we need to get to the point where we don't feel, as he says, pressed in or suffocated by the king's highway, by the king's will and his actions that he has for us. Oh, going beyond that, moving on in the text, in verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. I think this is connected to what he was just saying about those two different paths that you can take. Because there are lots of people, as, as we've hit on throughout the rest of uh, through, in the preceding points, there are lots of people who can really look the part. And in verses 21 through 23, he makes this case even further. There are many people who act like I'm walking on the narrow path. And yet you can tell by their actions, they simply are not. I was just talking with a woman uh, not too long ago who, who says that she is dedicated to doing everything that God has told her. And she is dedicated to following every will, every word. And yet you look at her actions, you look at the words she speaks, and almost everything she says can be proven as a lie. And everything she does can be refuted in so many different ways. And I don't know, I I really don't know what goes on in, in people's heads who are like that. Do they really think that they're doing right? Have they really gotten so desensitized that they think that no matter what they do, they can at least, you know, take something, just a couple of words from God's, from God's will, from God's revelation, and they can say, okay, well, this is fine now. Or, or, or maybe they just simply don't care. They know what they're doing. They're just trying to get some of the benefits of being a part of God's kingdom. I don't, I don't know. I really, can't, I really can't answer that. But ultimately, what I do know is that the, the, the path that, someone takes corresponds with their works the works the fruits are evident jesus says and that is what kind of reminds me of what he says at the very beginning of the chapter remember that we are to fairly judge there are people who are going to have to discern are they false prophets are they teaching the truth and again how do you do that but looking back to the word looking back to his standard we're going to have to because there are going to be people who try to creep in and will be wolves in sheep's clothing and again constantly throughout the new testament that instruction is given you need to root those people out and you need to make sure that no one like that no one uh, no worldly concept no worldly person tries to creep in and cause a division within god's church within the bride of christ and so we do need to uh 
fairly judge, have that righteous discernment to make sure that we can tell whether the fruit is good or bad. And finally, in verses 21 through 23, one more passage that we all know very well. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles even? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I'm, I'm always shocked and amazed when I read through this passage because even though it's very familiar to us, do you understand all of the things that he says that they do? He doesn't refute anything. He doesn't say, no, you didn't perform miracles. You didn't profess in my name. He doesn't say, you didn't do, that wasn't real. In fact, what, after, right after they even say to, that, that, that they are such servants that they can perform miracles, that they had the authority and ability to, what does he tell them? I never knew you. Now, there are no miracles. There, no one can perform a miracle today. We all understand that. That time has passed. But what is the application there? Oh, goodness, if, if, if even people who could perform miracles, Jude, even if one of Christ's own disciples is chosen, sent out, even if one of them could fall astray, those who, who were so close to him and could call him Lord, Lord, with that, kind of, with that kind of intimacy, if they can be lost, oh, goodness, so can we. And do we need to make sure, do we need to be cautious and careful that we aren't deceiving ourselves uh, into thinking that we are with Christ when we are actually are not? This is why we have to judge ourselves fairly first to make sure that there's no plank in our eye and make sure that we're walking on the correct path. Now, finally, as we end the chapter and end the, the, this sermon, um, at the very end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, he says, uh, at the very beginning of verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Skipping out to verse 26, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, we're going to read that in its entirety in just a moment. But, but in each verse, what you find is that Jesus, again, I think is highlighting something, a point that, that uh, from the first century to today needs to be continually remembered, which is there is a need, there's a necessity for hearing and doing. There's a necessity for hearing not just any will, but God's will, and then acting on it. It's a combination. There's conditions all throughout as you look at God's law, as you look out throughout the commandments that he gives to us, the promises that he gives to us. It's always on the condition of if you will wholeheartedly seek me, if you will truly obey me, then you can have paradise. You can be in paradise with me. Then you can have this reward that I've been promising to you. It's only to the faithful, not just anybody, can receive that kind of reward. Uh, but, but time and time again, not just in uh, Matthew chapter 7, but I think especially in this parable, what you find is Jesus is so strongly, firmly making this point. It's not just about hearing those words but really striving, striving to apply them and let it prick the heart so that way we can uh, be better servants and more dedicated servants to the Lord. Well, reading the entire parable that he gives, in verse 24 again, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And what happens? The rain fell. The same, the same things happen. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Now, we'll finish out the chapter in just a moment. But again, you see dichotomous language. You will either sink or you will stand firmly. And it all depends on what you're building on. It all depends on which path you decide to take. Now, it's, you know, I, I was studying with uh, Brother Tom Holly, um, uh, going throughout the book of Luke. And as we got to the parallel account of this, of, of this parallel, one of the, I really appreciated something that he said when talking about the, the, just the work it would take to dig deeper and to, and to make sure that you are building on solid ground on the rock. He, he said it's not popular. It's never been and it never will be popular to do the harder work, which is, again, digging deeper to build on the rock. But it's the only work that will actually keep you grounded. <laughs> and I thought, what a, just how beautifully said. You know, we, just trying to fix up our, the house that we just bought, you know, it, it's not in complete disarray. I mean, it's, it's, it's structurally sound, but there are some issues that, you know, we have to fix. At one point, we thought we were going to have to take up the subfloor in one of the bathrooms because uh, we were afraid that it was going to be dry rotted. Turned out it wasn't that bad. But I was seriously considering, you know, I don't, I don't know about this. Are we sure we can't just put like some kind of wood glue down and maybe it'll just keep everything, keep everything level and keep everything safe? Because I didn't want to do all that work. We may have to take the tub out. Now we're going to have to take all the subfloors out. Oh, don't forget that the, that the cabinet and the sink, they have to be disconnected. And I just thought, <laughs> is there anything else that we could do? Well, not if you want to be safe. Again, it turned out for the better. We didn't have to do all that. It wasn't as bad as we thought until we got, could see the whole picture and take up all the floor. But let me tell you, in the same way, when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to trying to get to heaven, it will never be popular, and it will almost always be more difficult to dig deeper and to build on the solid rock. It takes hard work. It takes hard work to not have the, the same spirit of anxiety that the world likes to offer to us. It's hard work to not have the same temperament and, and lack of patience and anger that the world likes to try and offer and give to us. It's hard to get rid of those things. But man, it's worth it. And if you're building on the rock... You won't sink. You won't fall. But you'll stand solid on the, the will, the word of Jesus, and the, re, the reassurance that he will give to us. But also, I would just say the, the final connection that I would like to point out about that parable is that the same thing happens to both people, to the wise and to the foolish. The rain will fall, and the winds will blow. No matter who you are, what it depends on is are you anchored on the rock or have you been deceived and put yourself, given your uh, confidence to the sinking sand of the world. And so we need to be careful about that as well. Finally, in verses 28 and 29, it says that Jesus had finished these words. When he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Um, let me just suggest, when looking at how the, uh, the reaction of the people, at least, at least temporarily, the, the immediate reaction of the people to Jesus' teaching. They were amazed. 
I think that is always the case, even today, with, with people who come to God's word, maybe for the first time, and they're reading through some of the things that Jesus says. You know, like we read in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 7. That's kind of shocking, is it not? To hear Jesus say that? And so you have some people who will come for the first time reading his word and reading what his will actually says in comparison or rather in contrast to what the world tends to act like it says. And they will be amazed. But let me tell you, let me just suggest amazement. I don't think that's, that's ever enough. There's, it's never enough just to have the correct knowledge. What's necessary is for you to act on it. I don't think that the crowd that was listening to Jesus and was amazed at his teaching, I don't think that it was enough, and I still don't think it will be enough today. We must be amazed at his teaching and follow it. We must hear it and do it. As he says, as I think is one of the main points of that last parable that we see in Matthew chapter 7. So the question is, are you willing to do that more difficult part and dig deeper to build on the solid rock, which is the only way to salvation, the only path? If you're a Christian and you feel like maybe you haven't been building on that solid rock, maybe you have been building on the sinking sand of the world, maybe your house has crumbled. You can build it, but this time on the solid rock. You can rebuild and you can, you can truly strive to get to heaven, to be with our Lord, to be with our Savior. Um, you don't have to sit there thinking, well, all is lost, even when the house is crumbled. As long as you still have breath, Jesus says, I'm still here. And if you want to seek me, I'll always be here. If you're not a Christian, are you ready to start building? Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it will probably never, ever be popular to the rest of the world and to the people around you, maybe even your family members. But I'm telling you, <laughs> those family members are just a shadow. The relationships we have today are a mere uh, copy and type of what we will have when we get to heaven do you really want to acquiesce to the fading glory and the fading pleasure of of satisfying the whims of others who do not care about god which will ultimately fade away rust to, and turn to ashes as we've already talked about it in the uh, middle in the beginning of the sermon on the mount or do you want to have that treasure that never fades if you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known. Come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.